Internet, what is up? Well, it's Wednesday, and it's what time for Weapons Free Wednesday. But before we get started on that, we've got a new sponsor of the podcast. We have my uh, good friend who is on the podcast, uh, Mr. Corey Schroeder. Episode 11, if you want to check out his episode. But what does he do? He is the man in charge over Capital City Wealth Management. And what is he doing for me? He's going to start managing my investment portfolio because I have realized that I need to start shoring that part of my life up and I need to start getting wise to you know, growing and maintaining a good and diversified portfolio for investment strategies for my retirement. Because let's, fo- let's face it, some of us, to include myself, are not getting any younger. I'm at the ripe old age of 44 years young. And uh, yeah, I probably have another, you know, 20-ish years, I would say, of putting my nose to the grindstone and trying to accomplish great things in my entrepreneurial endeavors. But as I get older, I'm not going to want to chase deadlines anymore. And I'm going to want to probably grow a white ponytail and a beard and get a lot of tattoos and work out and surf and paraglide and fucking write books and do whatever the fuck I want and not be on the, on the grind all the time. I'm going to want to enjoy my life and travel and save money to leave to my son and to have a place to probably curl up and die on a warm beach someplace rather than the frozen tundra of Wyoming that I've grown up in. So I've got my eyes set on some uh, long-term financial goals and he's going to help me accomplish them. So he's uh, he's the man. He also helps us you know, do smart things with our money to help minimize our tax liability because if you fall in the same camp that I do, which you feel like taxes are a little bit skewed and not what you want them to be, he will give you some very wise and legal strategies to help you know, manage your money and move it around and not give so much of it to Uncle Sam that you don't have to. Because I find that that's kind of the trend with my life and lives of other people that I've talked to is that we tend to err on the side of giving way too much money to Uncle Sam that he does not deserve. So I don't know about you, but I like to keep my money in my pocket and keep Uncle Sam's hands out of my pocket. If that sounds good to you and you're interested in finding out more about how you can grow and manage your own wealth and come up with a good retirement strategy, you should get a hold of my good counterpart here, Corey Schroeder over at Capital City Wealth Management. You can find him on Facebook or you can reach him at 307-222-8498. That is his office number. And if you're a veteran, he will give you a free consult, which is a $2,600 value. He does a full financial breakdown on you and like takes a look at what your goals and objectives are and he helps you get there, which is what he's doing for me and quite successfully. So I would highly advise you guys, if you're interested, go check him out. Okay, that concludes the business side of this thing. So let's fucking G-O. Cause I'm so fucking good. Hey, get some, baby. Get some, get some, get some. Get some, get some, come on. Get in, come on. Get some, get some, yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Question number one. How should I handle being in a leadership position over a crew of dudes that are 15 to 20 years older than myself? For context, I'm a maintenance engineer in a large Vegas hotel casino. We handle the electrical, carpentry, plumbing, and general maintenance of the facility, etc. Well, here's what I would say to that. I would say that I, once upon a time, had this kind of same thing happen where I was young in the contracting game. I was like 20, 28 when I got into contracting and I got thrust into a situation where after my first rotation, 
or I'm sorry, my second rotation, I was being groomed for leadership positions. And how I managed to do that, because my background is infantry. I'm not a tabbed or badged special operator, which I've said on many occasions. However, I've passed my fair share of selection processes in, in the Marine Corps and to actually do my contracting job, several phases of selection. So I'm familiar with the whole process and how it works. Uh, but being a regular infantry guy that is now thrust into a team of guys that are all come from special operations backgrounds, I had my fair share of challenges to overcome in terms of, you know, proving that I had the right and deserved to be there. And so by, you know, what I did was I just worked my ass off and I tried to outperform everyone that was on my team, every team that I got put on where I was just a Joe on the team and not in a leadership position. I would try to basically outperform everybody. And I got to the point where I was fairly successful at that, where I could out PT guys, I could outshoot them. I would have my nose and, you know, books of knowledge. I would pick people's brains constantly. I would do sustainment training constantly with, you know, the other guys on the team where I would be like, you know, if you were an 18 Delta, I'd go pick your brain on trauma management. And I would, you know, have the guys on my team that were Deltas give me classes on advanced trauma management techniques so that I could get my skill set spun up to where if the Delta needed a hand stabilizing a casualty, he trusted me enough to, to, to do that. And I got fairly proficient at trauma management. If it was an echo, I would pick their brains on, um, you know, that's the communication MOS. I would pick their brains on, you know, communications knowledge. And like, I got to the point where I could load, put load sets, crypto load sets into radios. I could check the timing on them. I could do, you know, tasks that were, you know, relative to getting everybody's radios set up and encrypted on our team and make sure our communications were solid. And I knew how to, if we were having comms issues, I got to the point where I could learn how to troubleshoot those and, and fix those on the fly. So um, same with, the, you know, the, the Charlies on the team, which are the demo guys. Um, you know, I'd learned how to I'd pick their brains on demo. That's one of the things that I'd say I was in a short critical shortfall for coming out of the Marine Corps. Um, you know, we didn't have that much general knowledge of demolitions and how to build, you know, specific types of charges to do specific types of things. So we had a, we had guys, the, we had a, our O352s or assault men as they're called that are versed in all things explosives. And they pretty much for the most part handled all of that stuff. But we, you know, as O311s didn't really get much exposure to that. So when I started contracting, I would just, I just became a student and I would just pick everybody's brain, suck their brain dry. If you were a team leader and I had the pleasure of like my first couple of team leaders were special mission unit guys, I just sucked their brains dry on knowledge on like, mission planning and mission prep and gear and field craft and, you know, just all the experience I could drain out of these guys. And then I would just, I would apply it. And as I climbed up the ranks into the, you know, leadership positions, when I started finally becoming an assistant team leader and then uh, eventually a team leader, I realized that what I needed to do was continue to outperform the, perform the people around me and know more than the people around me, but I also needed to set the example in every single thing that I was doing. And a lot of times I did that by, you know, outperforming them at certain tasks. But if I delegated a task to anyone, I also, if it was in my time window to, to, to do so, I would show up and actually help execute the task. So if I assigned somebody, you know, if I assigned a couple guys, hey, I need you to go out and go through our Connex container, our demo container, and like, you know, sort out all of our demo and make sure all of our stuff's good to go and stored properly and stored safe, safely and all of our charges that need to be prepped for mission are ready to go. And then I would show up with them if I didn't have any other pending tasks or any other things that I needed to coordinate or work on that were more important, I would show up with that and I would be the worker bee. So what I would say to you is 
it's going to be really important for you to know the job, which it sounds like if you are already in a leadership, if you've already been hired and you're in a leadership position, then you are probably pretty knowledgeable. But there's going to be some experiential knowledge, what I call experiential knowledge versus book knowledge, where if you've got guys that are 15 to 20 years older than you, they probably have some really good tricks of the trade and some really good field craft that doesn't show up in your textbooks and that you didn't learn at school. So I would pick their brains and learn all the little tricks of the trade that they like to apply. And then I would, you know, set the example. If you're tasking guys to do certain things and it's in your, your, you know, if you've got the time allotted, show up, help them with the task, be a value add to your guys, show them that you're not better than them and show them that you can do the job better than them. And, uh, you know, lead every single day by example, set the example, set and be the example is the best advice that I can tell you. And then that's how you're going to gain the respect. That's how I did it. I worked my ass off and I tried to really just learn as much as I could and outperform everyone around me. And then when I was in a leadership position myself, I would, I would be the example, be and set the example. So that is my best advice to you. If you are in a leadership role where you have guys that are older and maybe more experienced than you. Okay. Let's find question number two. Talk about your life experience and philosophies and routines and fitness. Curious to hear about how that has evolved for you throughout the years. Well, I'm going to be bluntly, brutally honest right now. I'm probably not in the greatest shape I've ever been in. And part and parcel to that has been my injuries and just the wear and tear on my body uh, that has occurred over my career. Like I have a couple of bad discs that bother me in my back. So I have problems, you know, with that, my back, just basic, my back and neck just constantly hurt all the time. And then I've had three knee surgeries and that has really hampered my ability to really get in the gym and do the functional things that I was doing before, where I was like box jumping my ass off and, you know, doing step ups and doing a lot of like deadlifts and like crazy complex lifts and, me and metabolic conditioning workouts. Like I've really slowed down to the point now. And I, oh, I was also ultra running. So my, which was kind of my outlet. I'm like, I'm trying to lightly start ramping myself back into running. But what I've noticed is like in my old age with these surgeries, like things, my body didn't heal as probably as good as it do, did or needs to. And so I hurt a lot. I got a lot of pain. Um, and I deal with a lot of that with, uh, some CBD and some Advil and, you know, trying not to overdo it when I do work at, get in the gym and do work out. But yeah, I've got, I've definitely, uh, slowed down and I probably need to go down to Panama or someplace and get some stem cell therapy on my knees and my back and probably need to do some of these things that, you know, the VA doesn't love to pay for, in which case it's really expensive and you got to save your pennies for that. So it's on my radar, but I've, yeah, I've really kind of slowed down in my, my physical uh, output because of all the injuries that I have had. So in terms of fitness, you know, I grew up on a ranch and a lot of what I did was just like natural working. And then as school went on, like I did conditioning, did conditioning uh, stuff in school where we had conditioning, what was called conditioning ed. And it was basically weightlifting, you know, properly executing, you know, and lifting weights and general, general education in lifting weights and, and, um, combining it with cardio and just general fitness. And then I joined the military and, you know, the military fitness thing was, you know, back and buys chest and tries and run, you know, three miles every morning and, uh, and swim. And so it wasn't until late in my career 
I think I exited off. I, I didn't discover CrossFit until 2006. So it was like my first year of when I got into contracting. I was, I got introduced to a CrossFit workout for the first time while I was on contract by a guy that was uh, a level two trainer by that time and a special forces soldier. Really, really great dude. Amazing guy. Amazing coach. He got me in some of the best shape I've ever been in in my life while we were overseas. But yeah, got introduced to CrossFit in 05 and then started training it. And I trained CrossFit exclusively until 09. And then I felt like I was worthy enough after, you know, four years, roughly for three and a half years of CrossFit to go to the level one cert. And so I went to my level one cert in 2000, yeah, 2009 and uh, got certified and then continue on with my CrossFit journey until let's see, 2012. So for like another three years, I opened a gym. I had a gym for a while. I was one of the first CrossFit affiliates in Wyoming, a little place called, we, we were originally called Mountain Fit, um, but then we changed our, uh, or we were doing business as Ascent CrossFit and uh, did that for a few years and then lost my gym and my divorce and then uh, moved to Jackson and got connected to Rob Shaw over at uh, Mountain Athlete which was also a military athlete and he was just starting up a thing called range fitness. And so I did a lot of that where it was like running, uh, you know, running burpees. It was a lot of functional fitness, but then also incorporated like shooting drills and you had time and accuracy standards, uh, in between, you know, exercise, uh, in between exercises. So I did a lot of that, did a lot of working out at mountain athlete with him. And then, uh, and then just kind of went to school and drifted away from that for a while. And when I was in um, San Francisco, I did a lot of running. It's like pretty much all I did, running all the time. Because I didn't have a lot of time to play with in between classes. So I, I primarily ran a lot of distance and did yoga. Like I was running probably in between four to six miles a day. My long run was 13 miles where I'd run across the Golden Gate Bridge and back to my apartment. I was like a 13 mile, so like a half marathon distance. And I did that once a week. And then on Sundays, I would go to yoga. So that was kind of my... Uh, journey with that. And then that's when my, you know, after I pretty much had wrapped up uh, school and had come back to Wyoming, I was, that's when my injuries really started rearing their ugly head. And, you know, then I had to go through three knee surgeries and just, that's when things kind of came apart. And so now what I do is I'm just, I, I do what I can do, you know, and I don't have any set, I don't follow any set programming. I just have a lot of experience with all the CrossFit that I used to teach and like my knowledge of you know, fitness through the years of doing all of that. And I just, uh, I will pin together a workout, whatever workout I feel like doing on whatever specific day. And I'm not like a three on one off or a five on one off. I just make sure that I get in and move my body, uh, you know, at least uh, two or three days a week. And sometimes I'm successful with that. And sometimes I'm not, it's also very dependent on my mood. Like I don't hold myself to any really super hard stringent standards. Cause I don't have any like super huge fitness goals for whatever reason right now. I'm not like, oh, I need to get in the best shape of my life or I'm training for this race or I'm training for this event or I want to go compete in, you know, fill in the blank thing. Like, no, I don't want to go compete in a no-gi jiu-jitsu tournament. Like, I don't have any goals like that currently. So I'm not, I'm not super, super focused on it. All my stuff is rather business related right now and like growing my company to a successful point to then where once it's grown to a certain point and flowing successfully and we're moving lots of product and I'm employing some of my good friends and talented people and we're at a certain level uh, financially and product wise, then, then I, then, then I'm going to maybe then back up and say, okay, well, what, what can we do from a, like, what do I need to do from a goal oriented standpoint for fitness? But right now it's just not, it's not a super huge priority to me. I have good genetics and I have a good 
foundation of, you know, fitness over the years. And so me just getting in and doing my, you know, old man, retired, beat up former operator workouts are, are suiting me just fine. I'm, I'm maintaining, I'm not getting in super huge, amazing shape. I'm not, I'm not a Trevor Thompson by any stretch of the imagination, but I am also not fat and disgusting and have a huge beer gut and losing my hair either. So I'm like, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, but I'm not, um, I'm not out there killing myself, you know, three or four or five days a week in the gym. I like to swim a little bit. I like to run, like jog. <laughs> I wouldn't call it running anymore. I would call it jogging. And, uh, you know, I like to hit the rower and mess around with the kettlebells and, you know, do box step ups with a plate carrier on stuff like that. I don't really, I'm not getting super crazy with the fitness stuff. So that's kind of my, it's kind of where I'm at fitness wise right now. Okay. Question number three. Okay, here we go. Red dot versus LPVO, which stands for uh, low power variable optic. Do you prefer one over the other? What factors determine your decision? This all comes down to like, what is the weapon being used for and what are its ballistic capabilities and limitations? And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about in terms of ballistic capabilities and limitations. Am I running a 300 black? And if I am running a 300 black, am I running a, am I running supersonic ammo, subsonic ammo, or both? And so, because I have a rifle that's set up like that right now, my 300 black right now, I have a fancy Spectre 1 to 4 on it, and then I have a offset set of iron sights. And so, what I do with that particular setup is I have this, the optic is is um, zeroed for supersonic ammo, particularly the 110 TAC TX uh, Barnes ammo, which is my favorite super load for 300 black. And I've killed several animals with that in in terms of hunting. I had a year where I watched Travis Haley over at Haley Strategic, who's a great dude. Um, he had a 300 black, a short little spikes tactical gun. And he was like shooting supported off of a pallet at like, I want to say 600 yards or something to that effect. And it was, he was um, hitting steel consistently. And I thought to myself, what, I wonder what the efficacy is of that gun on live tissue. And I wonder if you can hunt with it. Um, because we have a thing in Wyoming where you can, uh, you can only, you, you've, you, the game that you're hunting is caliber specific. So you have, if you're hunting deer antelope, you can use a 5.56 round. Uh, but if you're hunting moose, sheep, or elk, you have to use uh, something six millimeter or larger. And so 30 cal kind of falls in that, in that you know, definite in that larger caliber field. I know lots of, lots of hunters that hunt with 308 to include myself before I got really into 300 black, but I was curious what it could do. So I took a season and I tagged out completely with 300 black and I killed a whitetail, a mule deer, an antelope and an elk all in one season, all with 300 black ammo. The big test was the elk. I was like, I wonder if this will really put an elk down. And it did. And and granted, I shot at very close range. Like he ran out of the trees at like 90 yards and didn't know where I was at. He winded me as I was stalking up on him. And um, I could hear him breaking branches down below me. And so I was stalking down to him. And then we kind of had a chance contact and spotted each other at the same time. And he had ran, he had run uphill to me because he didn't know exactly where I was at because I was in this bowl and the wind was swirling around. So he didn't know exactly where I was or what direction. He definitely smelled me and he ran uphill to me. And then when he saw me, he was about 90 yards out and turned broadside to me. And I like just presented and dropped him from the standing position at 90. And uh, bullet did its job. So that said, that's a good example of like what your weapon is doing ballistically. So what I usually, as a rule of thumb, what I tell people is usually with short guns and depending on what you're doing with it, like if it's a home defense uh, situation where, you know, this is going to be riding around in your pickup truck or it's going to be a, you know, 
stay at home for home defense or, you know, you know, if you're living in a regular house type situation, I would say you're, you're fine with an RDA, a, you know, a red dot site. Um, you want a little extra push on that? Get a, get a three power magnifier, throw a three power magnifier behind that thing. I have that on, I have that set up. I use that set up on deployment and I use that set up on several of my shorter guns now. And kind of my rule of thumb with my guns is if it's, if it's a 10, five, if it's in that 10 inch length range, which I have several guns that are like that, I run a, I run a red dot with a magnifier on it. If it's longer than that, generally in that 14.5 to 18 inch range, I will run, if I'm at 14.5, uh, well, I would say 11.5 because I did experiment with having an 11 and a half inch gun with a one to 10 on it, Vortex one to 10, and absolutely love that setup. And it did good. Like I was able to effectively engage oh, man size steel at 600 yards with that little 11 and a half inch Knight's gun. And uh, it was great. I love that gun. So that's the shortest I've ever put an LPVO on a gun. And I was pretty happy with it. But I also had a, anytime I run an LPVO on anything, I also run a red dot uh, at the one o'clock. So you just can't your gun and you've got the best of both worlds, which is, it's an expensive, it's a pretty expensive setup uh, to do it that way. So if you can afford it, I mean, budget's always an option for everybody. If you can afford that, run that. And the reason I suggest a running a T2 in conjunction with an LPVO is I like to run around with my LPV, LPVO on three power and then have the red dot in conjunction to that to where I'm not like messing with the ocular objective on my LPVO very much. I like to just kind of leave that thing at three power um, when I'm cruising around because three power is kind of enough for immediate magnification, probably out to like 300 yards. But then if I need to, you know, I see a target or something, you know, like a, I'm deer hunting and I want to throw up a, you know, throw it on 10 power to see, you know, four or five, 600 yards away, I can do that. And then if I'm, I'm trucking through some trees or some thick brush, which has happened to me on a number of occasions while I'm hunting and something pops out of the brush, you know, the deer jumps out of the brush at, and it's like 20 yards away. I like to be able to just roll the gun and have that red dot right there to take care of business. So I really like having kind of both on my guns, so to speak, um, especially if I am doing something that's like a higher, pa uh, higher power magnification, like on some of my SPR rifles, which are my 14.5 to 16 inch length uh, ARs, and I'm running, you know, like a three, to, a 3 to 16 on there or a 4 to 16 on there, I definitely always run a red dot site on the one o'clock uh, to have the best of both worlds. But budget's a consideration for you and you, you know, are like me and you're very, if you're, you're purposely, you know, if you're purpose building guns for certain specific tasks, which is kind of the key to guns. Anybody, anytime, anytime anyone says, hey, what, what kind of gun should I buy? Or what should I do with this? Or what should I, I'm like, what are you using it for? What's its purpose? Um, what kind of ammo are you putting in it? What do you want it to do? You know, I had a conversation with one of my law enforcement buddies in New Jersey today, and he was like talking about like, you know, he wanted a, you know, he was talking about considering a, something like a 6.5 Creedmoor. But then he was like, because he lives in New Jersey, he's like, well, like the furthest I can shoot is 800 yards. Well, and then when I was like, well, what do you want? And he was like, well, I really want something that's 500 and in. <laughs> and I told him he should get an AK and he laughed at me and told me I was crazy because he's apparently an AR-15 fucking uh, aficionado, which is fine. Not a lot of people love the AK. I love the AK because I carried it for two rotations in Afghanistan and I got to see, I got very intimate with that gun and experienced what that gun and that, more importantly, that round and its terminal ballistics are capable of. And I got to tell you, I'm a big, huge fan of the AK for a lot of reasons. Um, he didn't love that answer though. <laughs> 
But to shoot five to eight hundred uh, yards or meters, I would say go for a, you know, go for a, uh, go for a 308. Plenty of good gas guns out there. Larue makes a fantastic gun. LMT makes a fantastic gun. Daniel Defense makes a fantastic gun. If you want to get Gucci, and you know me, I love my Gucciness, so I, I'm part of that, you know, SR25 mafia. I love that gun. I have a special relationship with that gun, and it's a fantastic uh, 308 platform. 6.5 is great, but 6.5, I feel like so that's like a 600 to 1,000 yard gun, you know, you can, or, or further. I think the capabilities on that gun, like it'll reach out to a mile, no problem with the right ammunition and the right shooter behind that thing. So yeah, I would say, uh, you know, red, when it comes down to red dot versus LPVO, once again, what are you going to do with the gun? What kind of bullets is it shooting? What's your environment? Do you live in an urban environment? Do you live in a rural environment? Like maybe your home defense gun, because you live on a 300 acre ranch, is going to be a 16 or an 18 inch, you know, 5.56 AR-15. In which case, I, if you're running something that long, definitely put a piece of glass on it that can support the capabilities of that platform. Because a lot of times you'll shortchange yourself. Like I laugh at guys that are putting red dot sights on 14 and a half inch, 16, or, or I've even seen guys with red dots on 18 inch guns. Like you're neutering the capabilities of that weapon system. Also, I want to point out something too, that it's not always about like you know, the magnification in terms of like, oh, here's what I would say. Magnification is also great for just observation, just being able to see what was going on. When I, my, one of my last deployments in Afghanistan, I was lucky enough to be working with some special mission unit guys and they had extra gear floating around and I got to put a uh, Night Force two and a half to 10 uh, by 24. And I ran that on a short gun. I ran that on a Mark, Mark 18 setup. And it was my first go around with running a LPVO um, in combat. And it was like my, I think that was my last deployment or my second to last deployment. But anyway, I ran that for a period of time and I love just being able to see at greater distance, just to observe the environment and see what's going on. You know, being able to take a good hard look at what we, you know, we used our optics quite a bit just to look at, you know, things that looked suspicious, like a jug, a water jug. And I use the, I'm using air quotations right now water jug sitting next to the road. Is there wire sticking out of it into the dirt? Is that an IED? Uh, what about that depression in the ground where it looks like it's been freshly dug out? Let's take a look at that. Is there any wires or weird colored plastic sticking out of that? Um, we would we would use it a lot for observation and just looking around and seeing the environment uh, around us, not necessarily for you know shooting. However, what I would say it is also reason why LPVOs are really prom, uh, you know, prominent nowadays is you know being able to positively identify your target, see what your target's doing, especially in uh, lower light conditions and variable light conditions. You know, when the lights, we're not talking about super low light, but you know, at the end of the day, when the light's starting to fade a little bit, the magic hour is right upon you and it's tough kind of to see. If you've got a optic that can gather light really good and allows you to see further, you can tell if that Afghan dude is carrying a AK or he's carrying a shovel. And Sometimes you might shoot him anyway, because it means if he was carrying a shovel, he was probably putting an IED in. So anyway, being able to see what people are doing and what they're carrying at distance in those different different light conditions is super important. So we, you know, different different strokes for different folks. It's also a lot of personal preference related stuff. But yeah, longer gun, more glass. Shorter gun, you can get away with less glass. And also your environment, you know, like if you're on a ranch like me, I live in a, right now, currently I'm in an urban environment. So like I run a lot of shorter guns in and out of my truck and in my, you know, my, in my concealed carry backpack that I carry around with me occasionally. So I run shorter guns. If I was out on the ranch or out in the mountains, I'd run a longer gun. I'd have more glass on it. I'd have more capability. So I hope that helped. 
Okay, question number four. Let's see here. If you could magically master and add one skill to your bag today, what would it be? Oh, that is a great question. I would say one skill. I would say I would want to be better at, I would say I'd want to be better probably at mechanical things on vehicles. I am a, you know, let me back up. I mean, yes, mechanical things with vehicles, but I would also with electrical stuff. Like I'm an, like I, if there's any type of like plumbing or electrical that ever needs to get done, I have to, I have to source that out because I do not know anything about plumbing and I do not, certainly do not know anything about electrical stuff and electrical shit scares me because you can definitely fucking blow your nuts off and give yourself a fucking permanent green mohawk if you fuck that up. So I don't like to fuck around with electricity stuff. I wish I knew more about electric, elect, electrical stuff. Like to give you an example, like I just found a, a ARB dual piston air compressor for my overlanding rig that I've been searching for for fucking months. I finally found one and I need to go get it installed now because it's got to get rigged in through my S pod, which is my like switch and electrical brain box housing to run all of my lights and my winch and all my extra goodies that require power on my vehicle. Uh, so I, I also had a dual battery setup put in and I'm just, I'm a fucking retard when it comes to electrical shit. And so I probably, if I would, you know, while I'm sitting here talking about it, I would probably want to be more one, one skill set. I would want to be more knowledgeable in how to wire things and what electricity and what it does and what it doesn't do and what will kill me if I fuck it up and what will just maybe tingle you know, tickle my fancy a little bit and allow me to still have dinner with all my teeth. So yeah, I'd probably want to be a little bit better uh, and more knowledgeable with electrical stuff so I could wire my vehicles and wire any construction projects and do things like that because I I know nothing, zero about it. Okay. So yeah, if you need somebody, if you need somebody shot at, you know, a thousand yards, yes, call me. I can do that all day long. If you need a truck wired, fuck straight off. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fuck. I barely know how to jump the fucking thing. I always forget like which cable goes to what thing and when the order that you're supposed to do it. And like, I have to fucking YouTube it every time to make sure that I don't fucking electrocute myself. So yeah, I, I don't like electricity. It scares the shit out of me and I wish I was better at it. So there's that. Okay. So let's see here. Question. Last question. Number five. Question five. Now that you're seeing some countries lift the ban on travel, where are you excited to travel to first? Oh, okay. Well, that's great. I I love that question. Yeah. Before COVID happened, I was saving money to go. I had three places that I really wanted to go to. I wanted to go kind of like uh, dive into Scandinavia. I wanted to go over to Viking land and I was going to stop in Iceland and do a week in Iceland. And then I was going to hop over to Copenhagen and go do all the things in Scandinavia. And then I was going to shoot up to Norway and do some time in Norway because I don't know why. I just, I, there's something awesome that I, I, I want to see the Northern Lights. Norway is an awesome country. Like I've always enjoyed the people from Norway. They're awesome people. So I just want to go check out Norway. I don't know why. I just have a bug in my ass to go up to Norway. So I was going to go do that. And then I was going to come down, hit Amsterdam again, and then fly out of Amsterdam, come home for a bit. And then the other place that I've been, because I've filled up two passports in all of my travels. I've been to like 30 countries, but a pri- primarily those were all across Asia and Europe and the Middle East. And so, and some in Africa. So I've done, you know, several, I won't say several, I've done a handful of countries in Africa, handful of countries in the Middle East, handful of countries in uh, um, uh, East Asia, and a handful of countries in, to include Australia, and a handful of countries in uh, Europe. And so uh, particularly the UK. 
and whatnot. So I want to get, I wanted, to, I have not been to a lot of places in Central America, done a lot of time in Mexico, all over Mexico, but I haven't done anything in Central or South America and I haven't uh, done anything in New Zealand. So the second phase of my trip is I had planned on going to, where was it, uh, down to Chile. I wanted to go to Chile and kind of go down the coast of Chile and end up in Torres del Paine, which is like right on the, I think it's on the Chilean Argentinian border. And it's kind of right in the middle of the Patagonia preserve, Patagonia park. So I wanted to go down, check out Patagonia, go down to Cape, uh, Cape Horn, I think is what the Cape is, the most Southern tip of South America and check that out, do a little adventuring around there. And then I was going to come home and then I had more time off. And then I was going to get on a plane and go to New Zealand and adventure around New Zealand and go kill a red stag. And so COVID, I saved up the money. I did all the planning. I looked at the time windows. I looked at pricing on tickets. Luckily, I hadn't purchased any tickets yet. And then COVID happened and completely fucked my plans. So I didn't get to do any of that. Um, so now I'm kind of like hanging out and uh, re-strategizing. Instead, I took, I took all that money that I had saved up and put it in my truck and turned my truck into an overlanding rig so I can like travel around and camp and see more of our country and spend more time in the great outdoors. So now I'm in the process of recalibrating and looking at that. So I still probably want to do that trip. I also, Japan um, is heavily on my radar because I absolutely love sushi and because Japan is cool. I did my first deployment in the Marine Corps in Okinawa and uh, actually spent a year total on Okinawa, which is why I love sushi so much. And I can use chopsticks like a fucking local there. I want to yeah, get back, get back to Japan, uh, especially after watching Travis's rice or uh, Travis Rice's movie, the fourth phase and seeing how awesome the snowboarding is in, uh, in those Northern islands. I think it's Hokkaido. There's a ski resort up there where it just gets dumped on and the powder is ridiculous. So a uh, little known secret. I want to get up there and check that out and go visit some temples Go eat some really great food. Japanese people are amazing. Great fucking people. Um, want to go hang out with them and um, yeah, do that. So there's Jap there's a Japan trip on the on the uh, on the horizon, and then same thing: Scandinavia, South America, New Zealand. My friends are getting married. My really great friends are getting married here soon, and she is from. She's an Aussie. And so they're getting married next year down on the Gold Coast. I've been invited. So Aussies be prepared. I always joke around with her. I'm like, I'm going to find my Australian wife when I go down to the Gold Coast. She's like, you're going to find fucking goddamn gonorrhea down on the Gold Coast is what you're going to find. And that maybe that's maybe that's the case. Maybe that'll happen because every Australian woman that I've seen has never been ugly. So I'm actually excited to do get out and do some travel and uh, tick some of these um, countries off my off the off the old bucket list. So yeah, so that's where I'm going to travel. But in the near term, I'm super excited that can, the Canadians have stopped. Well, I mean, not stopped. They're cunts, but they have. They're being less cunts now because they've opened up the border, and now I can drive across that motherfucker. So I'm going to go visit my good friend friends plural, Brady and Kelsey Shireen. And I'm going to go probably jump on the Brass and Unity podcast in the studio. I'm going to be on hand in the studio. And then there's some other people up in Canada that I have been trying to like really excited to meet and hang out with. So we're going to, we're going to do that. Canada, Canada will happen first. And then hopefully over the course of the next year and a half or so, I'll, I'll make it out to these other, other places. So that's the plan. Probably drag Kato's sorry ass along with me so that I've got a fucking translator. Okay, well, that wraps up this episode of Weapons Free Wednesday. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you have a great week. We're full tilt boogie back in this. Uh, next Monday up on the podcast will be my friend, uh, Danielle. And she is a great human and she is a 
physician's assistant. She specializes in women's health stuff and also is a got a master's in mental health. So her, I sat down with her and her boyfriend and they are great people and I talked to them and she we went on a huge COVID rant. So be prepared for that. Like we we ranted, we went super hard in the paint on the COVID issues. So anyway, be prepared for that next Monday. And until then, have a great week. Have a great weekend. We will catch you then. Peace. Anyone who runs is a BC. Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined BC.